Hello, and welcome to Teaching American History Saturday webinar, a webinar and podcast series that explores controversies of American history. Today, we are joined by our host, Jason Stevens of Ashland University, and panelists Jeffrey Sikenga, also of Ashland University, and Joshua Dunn of the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. For this month's controversy, we've chosen to focus on constitutional interpretation. Should we consider the Constitution to be a living document, or are modern attempts to interpret the Constitution necessarily constrained by the words of the founders? We are discussing, is the Constitution a living document? That's our guiding question for today. Is the Constitution a living document? Uh, And joining me on our panel is Joshua Dunn. Uh, He is professor and chair of the Department of Political Science and director of the Center for the Study of Government and the Individual at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Uh, Professor Dunn is also the editor of uh, Teaching American History's document collection, The Judiciary. Now, this is the volume that all of our documents today comes from. Um, The core document collection, uh, you've really got to check this out, especially if you're a teacher. You can find all of these volumes. There are now 31 of them online at tah.org, teachingamericanhistory.org, ranging from all sorts of topics in American history and government. Uh, Professor Dunn edited this one on the judiciary. You really should check it out. Uh, You can download a free PDF online, or you can uh, order a hard copy, and they're available for, I think, about $10 or so. Um, Let me introduce our other panelists. Uh, With us also is uh, Jeffrey Sikinga. He is executive director of the Ashbrook Center and professor of political science at Ashton University. Uh, And Professor Sikinga, as it turns out, we've got two real experts on the Supreme Court here on the judiciary, (laughs) because Professor Sikinga is the editor of the other core document volume, uh, The Supreme Court core cases, another core document collection that you really should check out uh, by visiting our website, tah.org. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you. Jason, I have to abjure the title of expert on the Supreme Court. I've given up that a long time ago. Anyone who claims to be an expert on the Supreme Court is fooling you. (laughs) Noted, noted. But we do do have uh, two gentlemen and two scholars with us. Uh, who have spent a lot of time studying our topic. Uh, is the Constitution a living document? And they're going to uh, you know, lend us uh, their expertise uh, here this morning. They're also both faculty members, by the way, in Ashton University's master's program in American history and government. And so we have opened up uh, the, uh, the Q&A chat function to our audience. Please, uh, audience members, please go ahead and feel free to submit questions at any time. We'll try to get to as many of those as we can. In the meantime, I'd like to just get the ball rolling here, gentlemen, if we could, just an opening question, or maybe really, uh, as it turns out, maybe two questions. So our our guiding question this morning, is the Constitution a living document? Help us to understand that. Help us to understand, first, what exactly the question is asking. What does it mean that the Constitution is or is not a living document? Uh, And second, why is that an important question, not just for teachers and students to think about, but really for all Americans? So I'll go ahead and jump in. And I actually think to, to answer the first question, it's useful to start with the second question, uh, because um, the debate over living constitutionalism really 
uh, emerges over conflicts over the power of the Supreme Court. Uh, and that particularly gets traction in the, the middle part of the 20th, uh, the 20th century. Uh, you start to see judges uh, say, say that the Constitution is supposed to be evolving, changing document, famous line, they're evolving standards of decency that mark the progress of maturing society from a case called Trot versus Dulles, which is yeah, kind of a classic statement about how the Constitution is supposed to evolve based on, based on changing, changing social circumstances. Uh, then this becomes even more important when you get to the 60s, and I would say the 70s, uh, even after the Warren Court. You could say the Warren Court gets, gets things going, but then you get to the Burger Court, and perhaps the most controversial decision of the last 60, 70 years was Roe versus Wade, and it was decided on clearly living constitutionalist grounds. Uh, I, I don't think there's any any other way of describing that. And then that kind of frames the debate over the power of the Supreme Court. It is it is it appropriate for the court to read into the Constitution, to find in the Constitution uh, rights that previously uh, people had had not found in the Constitution or did not did not uh, believe were there. Um, so I, I think that's why the, the the question really matters. What what's what should be the power of the Supreme Court, and if it, what should constrain judges, if anything, if anything at all. Uh, but then it really, you, you could say the idea of living constitutionalism itself emerges in the early 20th century prior to these debates over the Supreme Court. It really comes out of the progressive era where progressives were dissatisfied uh, with the constitution as it was. Uh, and so you have progressives like Woodrow Wilson explicitly calling for the constitution to be conceived as a living organism uh, because they didn't like the Constitution, but there the, the issues were more the structural features of the Constitution. Some of these structural features also become issues in the latter half of the 20th century. But for the early progressives, it was things like separation of powers, checks and balances, federalism, the, these structural uh, obstacles uh, to, to, to their agenda. Uh, so that's where the debate first emerges, but it kind of uh, really takes root in, in the judiciary in the middle part of the 20th century. At least that's my kind of rough uh, and quick read on it. Yeah, Jason, I think the only thing I'd add to what Josh says is um, that timeline seems right to me, which is the living constant, the idea of a living constitution does gain a lot of steam in the early 20th century. People like Louis Brandeis uh, famously making this argument. But it's interesting when you look at it historically, a lot of the progressives who were making that argument in the early 20th century were saying, the, by living constitution, we means it, we mean it. It grows, it evolves, it adapts, as Woodrow Wilson said. But the question became, well, who's supposed to do the adapting of the constitution? Who's supposed to do the evolving of it? Uh, the early progressives, many of them thought that's the job of the legislature, and they were actually angry at the Supreme Court. Think of a case like Lochner versus New York in 1905. They were angry at the Supreme Court for um, interrupting the ability of legislatures to shape the, their understanding of the Constitution. So they thought it should be legislatively driven. Later in the 20th century, um, you get the, with the Warren Court at least, you get the judicial uh, take on that. But for many years, the idea of a living Constitution sat squarely in the, uh, in the power of the legislature, not in the power of judges. Right. And progressives were the ones who created the doctrine of judicial restraint. Uh, they were, that was where the the idea initially emerged to try to limit limit the power of the court because they thought that a court in the early 20, uh, 20th century was as Jeff, Jeff says 
um, creating rights uh, that weren't actually there, finding them in the due process clause in cases like Lochner versus New York. Um, so things just kind of, yeah, they, they switch a little bit uh, once, you, once you get uh, to, the, to the 1950s. Yeah, that's all really, really interesting. Um, you know, those in favor of interpreting the Constitution as, as a living document, um, one of the arguments they, they may say is, well, if you interpret it as a living document, that's a way to keep the Constitution up with the times, right? That the Constitution written way back in 1787 is old and outdated, and so we need to update it and reinvigorate its words with the spirit of the modern age. Um, now, in a sense, right, the founders anticipated, right, that right, times would change, um, that people would, uh, you know, need to, to adapt, and they provided a way in the Constitution to keep the Constitution up with the times, correct? The amendment process. But for those in favor of a living Constitution, that's, that's not quite good enough, right? Because the amendment process, it's, it's slow, it's arduous, it, it takes a lot of time. Um, that's not what we're talking about here when we speak of a living constitution, right? N not just an amended constitution, but one whose words today mean something different than they meant back when they were written. Is that right? Yes. So uh, the, I think the response of originalists would be, yes, the constitution, uh, there are two ways that it's, it's designed to adapt. One is the principles themselves are often broad enough to, to uh, uh, deal with unforeseen circumstances, uh, but that doesn't mean that the principles themselves have to change. So, for instance, the the Fourth Amendment, when it was written, telephones didn't exist, uh, but the principles of an unreasonable and search and seizure can still can still be applied to that situation. But the principles themselves don't don't necessarily have to be to be written or redesigned in light of these in light of these changing circumstances. So often, I think, for originalists, would just deny the fact that these changing circumstances require the articulation of, uh, of new, new principles or changing uh, change to their meaning. Now, the question of the amendment process, this is one of the, 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 the most common arguments against living, living constitutionalism, which, which is that if judges are empowered to, to rewrite the Constitution in light of changing social circumstances, it does seem to cut against the very idea of having an amendment process itself. There are still practical issues, though, and Justice Scalia, one of the court's strongest originalists, actually argued that the amendment process should be easier um, because if it's if the, the way the way it is now it's so difficult to amend the constitution it essentially invites um, judicial freelancing <laughs> and so so his argument is either you either either have an easier amendment process or you have judicial activism <laughs> um, and so he he, his, he he would have preferred to have made the amendment process easier yeah, and I think we see the difficulty of that. I mean, it's only 17 amendments after the first 10, right? Bill of Rights. And if you include prohibition in that or take that out, 15. <laughs> and, and if you look at the amendments themselves, with the exception maybe of prohibition and its repeal, they're really um, structural amendments, extending the, the franchise, for example. Um, they're about, a lot of them are about democratizing the political process. Uh, and then dealing with some things like the you know presidency and the twenty fifth amendment, but they're they're most of them do not involve uh, social policy. Most of them do not involve constitutional rights. In fact, uh, there have been proposals for constitutional rights amendments, but they've really never gone anywhere. So the amendment process itself, the way it's played out, has not really addressed 
the kind of judicial, legal, constitutional questions that have arisen in courts. That's really good. Um, by the way, we've got several questions already coming in uh, to our audience members. Please keep those questions coming uh, via the, the Q&A function. Um, but we again, we've got several questions coming in. I think, gentlemen, you've already answered this first one that came in. Uh, from a historical perspective, how long has the debate between living constitution versus originalism been going on? So I, I think you both said somewhere early 20th century thereabouts. But this notion of originalism, which the question asks, and which I, I think both of you have already made reference to, what do we mean by originalism? Walk us through the main arguments in favor of originalism. And if we can, maybe, what do those originalists like Attorney General Ed Meese and Justice Antonin Scalia have to say in defense of originalism based on the documents that we read from both of those guys uh, for this webinar? Yeah, so I would say the, 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 the idea of originalism is a kind of self-conscious uh, mode of constitutional interpretation really gets going in the 70s and the 1980s. Uh, I, I think what some originalists would say is, well, no one actually had to articulate a doctrine of originalism because everyone was just an originalist before a, 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 a living constitutionalism came, came along. And then living constitutionalists would, would try to uh, create evidence that, that would argue against that. But it really, um, it's, you see it with Robert Bork starting to argue for this in the 1970s. But I would say that the speech by Ed Meese in 1985 is a, a, a key moment where it kind of launches originalism into the public consciousness. You have this very public debate between Attorney General Ed Meese and then Justice, Justice William, uh, William Brennan. And then you have Bork's nomination to the Supreme Court just a couple of years later, where this ends up being a, a, a central issue uh, in, uh, in, his, in his being voted down, actually. Uh, now, I would say what is interesting about originalism is that in the mid-1980s, it was the province of a narrow uh, kind of group of scholars and judges that, uh, that were, that were self-identified originalists. And it was ridiculed, by, I would say, by the legal establishment, particularly the constitutional establishment by and large. Uh, but you know, fast forward from 1985 to today, and uh, originalism has been uh, a growth industry <laughs> among uh, constitutional scholars. And so you see people where in, for a long time, people, they just identified as being a kind of a right wing uh, idea. And that's just not the case today. Uh, two of the most prominent originalists are self-identified liberals and progressives who teach at Yale Law School, uh, Jack Balkin and Akhil Lamar. Uh, they both, and they have their, their vagaries to their originalism that some originalists might not, uh, not, might not uh, agree with, uh, but nevertheless, they, they've just come out and said, yes, originalism uh, is the best way to reconcile judicial power with the Constitution. And I think that's the key reason that originalism has been, been this growth industry is that if you're going to have something like judicial review, where, where courts can uh, strike down legislation as unconstitutional, uh, there, there needs to be some way to control that so that it's not just judges making it up on their own. And it's to, for some people, originalism seems like the best way to do this, to reckon, again, to reconcile judicial power with, with, with constitutional government. 
Now, there have also been different varieties of originalism. Some people have now grown dissatisfied with originalism. It's become too Baroque, as, a, as a, one, one person who is part of the readings um, uh, for today has, has, has said. Um, and it's gotten very technical. And so you have what's called our, uh, original, uh, original intent originalism, and there's original meaning originalism. We can talk some about that if you want, but you can read some of these original articles and they're getting into philosophy of language. It's gotten, it's actually gotten, gotten quite, quite technical. Yeah, I would just add to that, that um, originalism, maybe, maybe it's true of all these kind of intellectual movements that think about the constitution. It was certainly true of living constitutionalism. They might've started off with a core idea and there was agreement on that core idea, but very quickly as it grew, different branches uh, have grown up. And that's certainly true among living constitutionalists, definitely true among originalists. But it is striking to me, as Josh was saying, if you just think about some of the cases and really important cases in the last, oh, 15 years or so, where both sides, call it the conservative side and the liberal side, not necessarily fair to say that, but let's call it that, both sides argue on original meaning, on originalism grounds. The D.C. versus Heller case on the Second Amendment. Does the Second Amendment protect an individual right to keep and bear arms for self-defense? Both sides, the majority and the dissent, argue on originalism grounds. Citizens United, the free speech case, both sides argue on originalism grounds. And a lot of Fourth Amendment cases where you have very interesting splits among justices both sides, again, arguing on originalism grounds. So on really important constitutional rights issues, where it used to be just originalists versus living constitutionalists, now you have a lot of agreement on originalism as a methodological approach, but not an agreement on outcomes. And that is not just among the political splits, but even among originalists, people like Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia, both very strongly identified as originalists, often voted with each other on the same side on cases, but they had some significant disagreements because they followed different approaches to originalism. So it, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a thing, an ism, but it has lots of different meanings and interpretations and uh, applications by judges. Yeah, you mentioned Justice Scalia, and actually we, we're getting a ton of questions coming in. This is proving to be a very engaging topic uh, with our audience. Uh, somebody asks, where does Justice Scalia fit into the living constitution originalism debate? And another, another person asked the, about the originalist approach, what are some of the weaknesses that Justice Scalia um, found in originalism? We have this piece from him. It's called Originalism, the Lesser Evil, which means it is an evil. It's just the lesser one between originalism and living constitutionalism. Uh, so this other person asks, right, the originalist approach seems to assume that the founders were all in agreement with their interpretation of the Constitution. Yet it's this person's understanding that disagreements existed among the founders immediately emerging in the 1790s. Uh, isn't that one of the, the weaknesses of, a, of an originalist approach? So, yeah, Scalia, he, he initially called himself a half-hearted originalist. Uh, towards the end of his life, though, he said, I'm not a half-hearted originalist. I'm just an originalist. So he kind of, he, he abandoned that. So I think by the end, he, but this was a very famous, the, the, the uh, lesser two evils, 
that was a very famous article of his uh, speech of his, and so that's why it needed to be included uh, included in this. And for him, he would mention things like, "Well, what if they allowed certain kinds of punishments that just really are, you know, distasteful to us today? I don't know what I would do." <laughs> um, uh, so, the, you know, so, so so maybe some Eighth Amendment questions. Um, but later on, he just he just became a a, a fully you would say a fully com, uh, committed uh, originalist. Um, so yeah, one one of the one one of the critiques of originalism is that well the founders disagreed on on things. So how can we actually know what the original original meaning of the Constitution actually is? I, I think originalism gives two responses to that, uh, or at least two responses. One is that. Uh, the disagreement isn't as common as people like to say that it is, that very often the disagreement was over whether or not this was a good idea, not what it was actually doing. So if you looked at some of the debates between the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist, uh, there was consensus about what the Constitution was going to do, um, but the, the dispute was whether or not they should do it. <laughs> um, and so that, so that would be w one response, is that often the there's not as much disagreement over the meaning originally as, as, as people sometimes say. A second response I think that originalists would give is that even if there's disagreement, that still doesn't mean that you should then, if they, just because there might be disagreement among the, the people who wrote the document and the original understanding of it, that you should then license or authorize judges to just read into it whatever they want. Um, that that's that, that's a, an additional step that doesn't simply follow from uh, initial disagreement over, over the meaning of, uh, of the document. And that that step would then violate the basic structure and premises of uh, of the documents uh, that you have life tenured judges um, who are unelected who then can uh, then modify the the meaning of the constitution as they want essentially as Brut Brutus's fear among the anti federalists uh, that they they would use their authority to interpret the constitution to just write their policy preferences uh, in in into in, into the document. Um, so I think that would be the second response. Yes, there can be disagreement. And that just means you have to kind of really dig into it and then look at what the range of acceptable positions might be. And there might be some latitude uh, in, uh, among those positions, but it doesn't then follow that judges should simply just find in it what they prefer. Yeah, I would, I would just add to that. Um, Justice Scalia called his approach text and tradition. Uh, and for the folks out there listening, uh, he has a book called A Matter of Interpretation in which he articulates this view of text and tradition. He says, start from the text and the plain meaning of the text. And then if we have to interpret, how do we interpret that plain meaning according to the legal traditions? So, because the, there is the problem that originalists always face, which is how do you find the original meaning? Do you do it by the original intent of say James Madison, or do you do it by how the document was understood by the public at the time? Right. So that's original intent versus original public meaning. But then if you say, well, it's how the document was understood at the time by the public. Well, how do you find that out? How do you know that? And what Justice Scalia argued was you look at the legal tradition that existed, the laws on the books at the time that use similar words and address similar issues. And you would have a sense of the legal public mind on the meaning of that word or phrase. But he admitted that that's not always easy and there could be conflicting uh, for example, the Establishment Clause, there could be conflicting meanings of that if you looked at the states and what they were doing. Um, the other thing that Scalia always admitted was the, there is a problem, and this is being addressed right now by a lot of originalist scholars, which is what do you do about precedent? 
And there was a good example where um, I think even all the way through the end of his career, Scalia maintained, take, for example, the New Deal cases. He might have he might have thought that privately that a lot of the New Deal cases allowing uh, Congress's broader commerce, interstate commerce power, maybe those weren't consistent with the original meaning of the Commerce Clause. Maybe, maybe not. It's an, uh, kind of a toss up. But he always argued, but the, the precedent has been settled since 1937. And we're, it's just too much water under the bridge and we're just not going to go there. So it's almost as though those precedents become part of the constitutional meaning and originalist judges should just kind of accept that that's how it is. Now, that has enjoined a lot of sharp response, including someone like Justice Thomas, who said, no, if precedent is in conflict with the original meaning, we throw out the precedent no matter how old the precedent is. And Thomas has lately called in the last few years for throwing out precedents that have been around for 150 years because he thinks they're contrary to the original meaning. But Scalia's approach was always, no, I think that some issues are just been settled and they're just part of, if not the original meaning, the acquired meaning of the text now. Yeah, that's very good. Uh, we have another question coming in asking, uh, Jeff had explained this difference, the different approach between two originalists, uh, Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia. But this person asks, where do the recent appointments to the Supreme Court, where do they fit in as either originalist or living constitutionalist, right? There's been a lot of change in the makeup of the court recently. Where does the court currently stand on this? So Gorsuch is uh, an originalist and textualist, uh, but that's an example of where so, so textualism would be kind of the, the uh, I, I think the best way of, of thinking about that is almost an originalist approach to statutory interpretation. Uh, so uh, when it comes to statutory interpretation, there's always this question of, should you try to read the broader intent into the sta statute or just take the language of the statute as it is? And Scalia, that was another area where he had immense influence was he said, it's just the text, just the text, just the text. We can't get into whatever what some people in Congress thought they might have been up to. If they if they're up to it, they should have put it in the text. Uh, but Gorsuch, he ends up with this decision in Bostock versus Clayton County it, uh, on sex discrimination, saying that sex, as it was originally understood uh, under uh, that uh, it was originally understood under Title VI probably didn't include sexual identity and gender identity and gender identity uh, or sexual orientation and gender identity, but says that it actually does include it using a, 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 a textualist approach. But he nevertheless is a committed originalist. Justice Barrett, uh, she's uh, uh, an uh, originalist. I no doubt that Justice Jackson is, is not an originalist, uh, but I guarantee you that she will, uh, as, as Jeff mentioned, rely on originalist arguments because, again, if you're going to have any any chance of trying to pull some of the some of the conservatives on the court uh, to your side, you're going to have to try to make some originalist arguments to, per, uh, to, uh, to persu uh, persuade them. Uh, Justice Thomas is an originalist. Now, I think Kavanaugh, Roberts, and Alito, I, I would argue that they're deeply informed by originalism and think that you always have to take original, uh, original meaning into account. But I'm not certain that they're fully committed originalists. Um, I don't know that any of them have actually ever officially said that. Uh, in certain areas, they might say it. So, for instance, on the Establishment Clause, they've all essentially come out and said we have to rely on text and tradition uh, to understand uh, the Establishment Clause uh, clause now in the, re in the religion clauses. But in other areas, I'm not certain that they are 
they're they're fully co- uh, committed originalists. Um, they they strike me as being more like traditional conservative justices, like uh, Justice Harlan, the second Justice Harlan, who was always he was he was a conservative justice, but you wouldn't have called him uh, an, ori- an an originalist. Yeah, um, I, I to take the example of Alito uh, on the Fourth Amendment, for example. Uh, in 1967, the Supreme Court, in a case called Katz versus United States, said the Fourth Amendment protects your reasonable expectation of privacy. And it was actually Justice Harlan who articulated that test in his concurrence. Yeah. Alito's come out very strongly, and he had some very sharp disagreements with Scalia, who said, I think we need to go back past that test, back to the older-fashioned original understanding of the Fourth Amendment, which he called the trespass doctrine, um, and uh, Alito very fiercely said, no, we're, uh, we're not going to do that. We should continue to maintain the test, the way of the interpretation, uh, kind of an updated interpretation as it understood itself in 1967 of the Fourth Amendment. And he's been remained committed to that. So I think I would agree with what Josh is saying that Alito, for example, is not um, a strict originalist. Justice O'Connor, uh, maybe people remember her, of course. On some issues, she was a very strong originalist, like the reserve powers of the states. On other issues, like abortion, she was not a very strong originalist and was kind of toward the, the living constitutional side. So justices, you know, don't always fall strictly into camps. Yeah, I noticed going back and rereading these these documents that we've assigned for for this morning, that both Justice William Brennan right, a a living constitutionalist, uh, and Justice Antonin Scalia, uh, in his piece, both of them identified that one of the weaknesses of an originalist approach to reading the Constitution um, is the difficulty of understanding the historical sources, right, of being able to go back and and put ourselves back into, right, the the shoes, so to speak, of the the framers and understanding what was going on in, in their minds. Um, both these guys who have very different approaches say, yeah, that's, that's hard to do to understand what was the original understanding of the Constitution. And we've got a ton of more questions coming in here. I'm going to try to combine a couple of different ones here. This one person asked, um, right, they're reading these documents and they're seeing different phrases, right? Like originalism and strict construction. Are those the same thing? Is that the same approach to understanding the Constitution? And therefore, is a living Constitution really then a loose construction of interpreting the Constitution? Could you say something on that? Yeah, sometimes people will try to say that this the, the current debate between originalism and living constitutionalism is roughly the same thing as that debate between the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans over strict versus loose construction. And I don't, I don't think that's the case. Uh, I, I don't think that you, for instance, see Chief Justice uh, Marshall coming out and articulating what could reasonably be called living constitutionalism or anything that comes close to it. In fact, originalists will point to uh, some, some of the things that he said as, as support for originalism. The question is, is uh, between the strict constructionists and the loose constructionists was over what was actually contained in the document at the time. Did it actually allow for the creation of a national bank or not? Uh, and I, I think if you look at the debate over that, it was largely conducted again on on what what does the document what did the document actually allow as it was as it was originally uh, as it was originally written. So I don't think it's quite the same, uh, but you can it's re it's it's understandable how people can see this because you could say that. Uh, living constitutionalism does lead to a, a looser interpret, interpretation of the Constitution, allows for more flexibility, those kind, but not 
I would say it's not actually required by living constitutionalism, which I think is something we ought to address. Um, but uh, it, it is, uh, yeah, so I think you can, it's reasonable to see why people would say that, but I don't think that the, the, the people arguing for loose construction, for instance, would have agreed to a lot of the principles of living constitutionalism. Yeah, and I think on the other side, when you think of strict constructionists, um, I think of a justice like Hugo Black, who, who said things, again, on First Amendment cases, well, Fourth Amendment cases, for example, he would say, look, I, love, I like my privacy as much as the next man, but the right to privacy is not in the text of the Constitution. So we as judges should adhere to the text and construe it strictly. And therefore, we, if, if you want to update the Constitution and go back to our constitutional amendment discussion, you need to amend the Constitution. He said judges should not sit as a continual constitutional convention, as he put it. So, but he was a strict constructionist. Uh, and it, so interesting, on, but on the First Amendment, for example, he, he was uh, almost a free speech absolutist and said strict construction means freedom of speech. And that's all it says. And that's what it is. So it's, again, hard to pigeonhole people based on the approach they take to strict construction, because Black also was a strong New Dealer who supported the court's uh, interpretation, broad interpretation of the commerce power in the 1930s and 40s. So because he thought strict construction meant Congress has these powers. So even if you adopt the strict construction approach, it's not clear where you end up in your decisions. Just as Josh was saying, if you adopt a loose construction approach, it's not clear where you end up your, with your decisions necessarily. Um, uh, in one of the documents in this volume that Josh included is the McCullough versus Maryland case. And there, the, the, sometimes there have been words used by justices in later cases, quoting that, suggesting that Marshall was um, endorsing a living constitutional approach. We must never forget is a constitution we are interpreting. And I was wondering, Josh, if you could just address that because it's very often used by justices in later cases. Right. Yeah. So I, people read a lot of it, a lot into that. <laughs> that. That's what I would say. And so, you know, I, I think what G Chief Justice Marshall was saying, given the context of McCulloch versus Maryland, was that the Constitution was designed to uh, uh, to last, and therefore a proper reading of the Constitution would allow for Congress and then, of course, the president uh, to to do things like create a uh, create a national bank. Um, and so, I, I, I mean, I don't see anything in there that's saying living constitution. It just means for him that a Constitution itself uh uh as they as they fr and as they framed it was designed to allow them to meet new circum uh, new circumstances and so again the principles themselves their meaning doesn't have to change it's just that the principles them were, were were broad enough to uh to encompass these encompass these new circumstances so i think that would be the uh the, the way i would uh, respond to that that's really really interesting great stuff here Okay, uh, gentlemen, can you can you walk us through the main arguments in favor of interpreting the Constitution as a living document? How does someone like Justice William Brennan or Judge Richard Posner, who we read for this morning, um, what do they have to say in defense of the living Constitution doctrine? These are smart guys. Why are they interpreting the Constitution in this way? Right. So uh, the the obvious argument is that society does change, <laughs> and there there can be circumstances that arise where uh, 
the original meaning of the Constitution might lead to results that seem completely um, out, uh, unacceptable uh, given our, our, our current politics. Um, I, I'll give one that I think even originalists would, would probably, or some originalists would, would agree with, agree with, freedom of speech. Uh, I think you can make a very good argument that when the First Amendment was written, uh, that what they largely meant by it was the doctrine of no prior restraint. At least many people thought that that's what freedom of speech meant. Um, there, there are good reasons for thinking that that was the core uh, principle uh, undergirding free speech. And that just means that the government can't stop you from saying something before you say it, but you can be, you can be punished after the fact for it. Uh, and so that's what the people who passed the Sedition Act <laughs> argued uh, just a few years after that. And then they pointed to the understanding of freedom of speech in English law as, as, ju as justification for it. Well, today, like, I don't know that many people would actually say that they, I, I think people should know that the doctrine of no prior restraint is a necessary, but maybe it's not a sufficient uh, uh, understanding of freedom of speech uh, so that you actually have full prote protection for it. And so I don't see, for instance, in Scalia's jurisprudence on freedom of, uh, on freedom of speech, I, I don't think he grappled with that as much as he probably should have as a, as a self-professed uh, originalist. Or another example, um, there, there's a, a very controversial case uh, called Smith versus Oregon. Um, uh, Oregon versus Smith, sorry, uh, over, over the meaning of the free exercise clause. And Justice Scalia wrote the, the, wrote the opinion for the court on that. And if you read it, there's not a whole lot of originalism there. Uh, he, uh, his argument was, well, if we create exceptions uh, to generally applicable laws, we're going to have anarchy based on, uh, based on someone's religious, uh, religious doctrines. Uh, and that's not really an originalist argument. Um, he just doesn't address uh, in, in, the, in, his, in, in his opinion, I think, what, what the original meaning, and in fact, the dissents in the case do a better job addressing, I think, the original meaning. Uh, but that might be an example where an originalist like Scalia would say, yeah, this just leads to undesirable results, because if we do just start making exceptions based on people's uh, uh, relig religious beliefs, it's just going to be chaos. Um, so that, I think those would be the primary arguments. Uh, and, and, and that would be, you know, I, I think it's one primary argument for, for the living constitutionalism that society does change. Um, but then you are left with these other questions, though. If society is changing, then who should do the changing uh, to the meaning of the Constitution, which goes to that, what Jeff brought up earlier was the initial progressive said it should be the legislature, uh, because the legislature is actually closest to the people, so therefore has the best idea or understanding of how, how, of how society has changed, therefore how the Constitution's meaning should be modified. I think one other argument that you hear in favor of a living Constitution people will point to a case like Brown versus Board of Education, right? Which uh, the court itself in Brown, actually, Warren argues, if you look at the original meaning of the 14th Amendment, it's not clear that the original meaning prohibits race-based segregation in public education. So in fact, he, he even suggests maybe it would have permitted such a thing. So a lot of people look at that case and say, well, everybody agrees with the outcome of that decision now. And it's held and it gave the court enormous moral authority, certainly in the 60s, 70s and 80s um, and still does today. And many people have argued if you interpret the 14th Amendment according to what it meant in 1868 and apply that to public education, racial segregation, public education, you might not get the outcome that the court got in 
Brown versus Board of Education. So I, sometimes you'll see that the the the, the out, one of the arguments in favor of the Constitution is there are moments when society is divided, and the Supreme Court has to do the right thing, and it it it's the rightness of its interpretation will be ratified later by society when society kind of catches up in its thinking or is no longer so divided. And Brown versus Board of Education, I think, is the classic example for the proponents of living constitution. Yeah, there are some living constitutionalists will say any theory of constitutional interpretation that can't arrive at the outcome in Brown versus Board of Education must be illegitimate. And then they will argue that originalism can't lead to the outcome in Brown versus Board of Education as a way of uh, uh, saying that originalism, therefore, would be illegitimate. If you want the response to that, the, there's a professor at Stanford, uh, Michael McConnell, who I actually been on the federal court for a while, who wrote the originalist response to that argument, arguing that Brown versus Board of Education was fully compatible with original uh, with originalism, but that would that that uh, Jeff is right. That's uh, that's one of the the most important arguments that's brought out is if you if 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 you can't uh, accommodate Brown, then there's something wrong with your interpretive position. We have another question here from one of our audience members who I I think is a teacher. Uh, this person asks, doesn't the idea of a living constitution usually mean expanding the federal government's powers at the expense of the state powers? So what has been the effect of living constitutionalism on federalism? Well, so for the original advocates of a living constitution, that was one of their goals was to weaken federalism. You know, Woodrow Wilson explicitly wanted to, uh, to weaken federalism, separation of powers, checks and balances, to consolidate authority in the presidency, uh, to turn us really into a, uh, a parliamentary style uh, system. Uh, so certainly there. Um, but then I would think that you, if you look at other cases, uh, when the living constitutionalism becomes adopted by Supreme Court justices, certainly there are cases where uh, they they uh, ruled in favor of the national government uh, at, at at the expense of the states. But I, I will get, I, I'll go ahead, ahead and say this here. I meant, I kind of alluded to this earlier. Sometimes people think that living constitutionalism requires something in particular, which is that always the expansion of rights or always the expansion of the power of the, uh, of the national government. And that actually doesn't follow from the premises of living constitutionalism. Uh, living constitutionalism as a core is simply that the constitution's meaning should change according to changing social circumstances. But it could be that changing social circumstances should, should then require that the meaning of the constitution should go in the reverse direction, that it should limit the power of the, the, federal, uh, of the federal government or that rights uh, the the uh, should should be minimized or restricted. I think the best example of this is Judge Posner, who you mentioned. He also wrote. I, so there's an excerpt uh, uh, from him today, but he also wrote a book after 9/11 called "Not a Suicide Pact." And there's a, a passage from there where he says, "Look, uh, right, the meaning of rights is just created by judges. <laughs> yeah, that's, we just judges get to decide what what right, rights mean. And sometimes, hey, circumstances change, and so." The balance between freedom and uh, safety has now shifted, and so maybe yesterday you should have been free to say certain things, but today, because there's a war on terror, for instance, uh, freedom of speech should mean something less the, than, it, than it meant yesterday. So there's nothing inherent in the idea of living constitutionalism that should mean that rights should always expand or the power of the go national government should, uh, should all, uh, always expand. Yeah, and I'd only add a couple of things to that. One is that 
Bill Brennan later, uh, after his debate with Ed Meese, started calling on state courts. He said, let's not forget the importance of state courts. State courts should adopt the living constitution approach in interpreting their own constitutions. And, and put in, you know, if Roe v. Wade is threatened on the national level, have a, the state courts ought to, for example, interpret their state constitutions to include a right to abortion. And in fact, we've seen that just in the last year or two uh, in response to the Dobbs decision. So um, uh, that's that's one argument, again, focusing on the state level. The other thing is um, Justice Scalia, the originalist, actually said the living constitution approach to the Fourth Amendment has reduced Fourth Amendment rights. And it's very interesting. I mean, it might surprise people if they haven't read some of his Fourth Amendment decisions. He thought originalism was a way to inc- augment or restore Fourth Amendment protections that had been eroded because society had changed over time, technology had advanced so dramatically, and society had kind of accepted that advance of society in restricting Fourth Amendment rights. Um, For example, a a broader understanding of what's permitted under search and seizure. So living constitution approach, as, as Josh said, does not always mean an expansion of rights. Yeah, I, after Scalia's death, I remember one uh, very uh, scholar, very much on the left. He, he's essentially, I think he would call himself a Marxist, actually, but he teaches at the University of Chicago Law School, a guy named Brian Leiter, who said that Scalia gave the biggest gift to criminal defendants in the, of the last like 30 or 40 years with one of his opinions on what's called the confrontation clause. Um, but then you also see cases like Kylo versus uh, U.S. This is a case uh, with, with showing what Jeff is talking about, where where uh, Scalia argued that that there should a warrant should be required if the government's going to go up and use essentially heat sensitive goggles to look down and see who's growing marijuana. Uh, and that was a case where it was decided on originalist grounds. The debate was on originalist grounds. Uh, but the, a dissenter was actually Justice Stevens. Um, who used more of a living constitutional approach to argue that no, there's nothing wrong with the government with, with the government doing that. Um, so yeah, Scalia, uh, criminal defense attorneys often find originalists to be their best friends uh, on, on the Supreme Court. You mentioned uh, Justice Brennan, who I I think I've I've read a lot of his opinions. Uh, what a smart guy. Right, probably the smartest liberal I think to to have sat on the the court. I want to go to the document, uh, if we could, gentlemen, um, because uh, in 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 reading this again, uh, it's it strikes me um, right just how thorough Brennan is in his analysis. So if if I could just read a, a small portion from this document, uh, Justice Brennan said that quote, when justices interpret the Constitution, they speak for their community, not for themselves alone. The act of interpretation must be undertaken with full consciousness that it is, in a very real sense, the community's interpretation that is sought, end quote. But then later in the same document, he, he seems to contradict himself, maybe, when he says that it's also the purpose of the Constitution, quote, to declare certain values transcendent beyond the reach of temporary political majorities, end quote. So on the one hand, we're searching for the community's interpretation when we read the Constitution. But on the other hand, there, are, there is still a standard. There are still these transcendent values, apparently. How do we reconcile those, those two claims? What if in other words, what if the community's interpretation that we're searching for, that we find, rejects those transcendent values that we are obligated to uphold? Well, can I just jump in on that, at least a, a couple yeah. of them? 
Uh, yeah, and I think that's that's a tension in the living constitution approach, right? How if you say we're going to interpret the constitution according to how society has changed, how does Justice Brennan know what society thinks, right? Um, that's always been a challenge for a living constitution approach. Uh, you know what he argued, I think, often came back to was the it's it's incumbent on me as a justice, and he was really uh, unabashed about this in a way that I don't think any other justice on the court right now is. There's no, no living constitutionalist as robust now on the court as Bill Brennan. No question about that. And the example I would give is the death penalty. Bill Brennan said the death penalty is unconstitutional, even though he admitted that the text of the Constitution implies that the death penalty is perfectly permitted, right? You can't deprive someone of life without due process of law. It implies that if you give them due process of law, you can deprive them of life, right? So even the text itself, and he admitted that, but he said, look, it's just a cruel and unusual punishment. We know this. That's the value that's in, in the Constitution. And we judges have to speak for the conscience of the community. If the community understood this, and Thurgood Marshall actually said this, if the community understood the cruelty of the death penalty, they would be opposed to it. So I have to speak, when I say speak for the community, I mean I speak for the conscience of the community. He said that on death penalty cases, he also said it on some Fourth Amendment cases, where he says if, if the community really understood this case and what the police were doing here, he, they would understand that they're out of line, even though the law permits them to do what they're doing. All right. In the death, that's a great example because public opinion on the death penalty. <laughs> yeah. Ever, ever since Furman versus Georgia, there have been, and that was a case where the Supreme Court thought that it was going to get rid of the death penalty, but not officially get rid of it. Uh, it actually mobilized public support uh, for, for the death penalty. It backfired on the, on the Supreme Court and actually then led to increased application of, of the death penalty. But what you saw ever since Furman versus Georgia was very stable and substantial majorities of Americans in favor of the death penalty. And so Brennan really didn't have a way of reconciling that. Only now, sometimes I think in the past, I think in the past few years, past three to four years, there might have been some polls showing that, that there's uh, not a majority of support for, uh, for, the, for the death penalty. Uh, but really, for, you know, for 50 years or so, um, you're talking about anywhere from 60 to 80 uh, percent of Americans expressing support for the death penalty. And so that really does cut against what, uh, Brennan's arguments uh, and where he then has to move to this, as Jeff was saying, the conscience of the community. But he wouldn't. Brennan just simply wouldn't let the text get in the way of the desired outcome. Uh, even his own clerks came away a little bit shocked sometimes by, by how uh, by his willfulness with the text. And there are these famous stories about William Brennan, um, and there are different variations of it. But one is that uh, each year he would bring in his new batch of clerks and ask them what the most important word or phrase or principle in constitutional law uh, was. And they would say freedom of speech or equal protection, due process of law, separation of powers. And he, sh he shakes his head like, oh, my goodness, what are they teaching you in law school these days? And they'd exhaust all the options. And they said, well, what is it? What is it? And he would just hold up his hand. And then he'd say five. With five votes, you can do anything around here. Um, so that, that captures some of, uh, yeah, his, uh, uh, I, I think some of his, his, his approach. And so Jeff, there's no one like that today on the court. No one who would just be that uh, aggressive or willing to be um, that straightforward, actually, in, in, in saying what they were trying to do. Wow. Wow. Yeah, we, we've got a lot of questions coming in right now. So please 
uh, keep those questions coming in the Q&A function. Uh, I'm going to try to combine several questions here because we've got a lot of questions dealing with uh, some of the apparent dangers of interpreting the Constitution as a living document. What are the most evident dangers of approaching the Constitution in this way? Does the Constitution mean merely whatever the Supreme Court says it means? So I, that would be, yeah, I, I, that is, I would say the biggest danger, according to originalists, is that then just does license uh, justices to read into the documents, what, what, whatever, whatever they want to find, which then that would erode and undermine other basic constitutional principles and powers of other, uh, of, of other institutions. So I think, um, yeah, that you, and this goes back to the very beginning uh, of uh, of America. I mean, you see this this really the same debate going on uh, with the anti federalists. They feared that this is what justices would end up doing. The Constitution doesn't give them as a, the the authority, but they thought this is going to be the natural result. This is what uh, Brutus argued. You had Thomas Jefferson being qu quite alarmed at this possibility. Andrew Jackson, uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, as well. Uh, that really it, it turns us into uh, a, a kind of oligarchy uh, that's under the control of of, of life tenure justice. So I think that would probably be the most the the, the, the most significant danger of it. Uh, they, something then follows from that, and this is something that also follows from the progressive critique of judicial activism. Uh, and you see this with opinions written by, for instance, progressives like uh, Felix Frankfurter. That when the court does undertake this responsibility to keep the Constitution up to date and decide more and more questions and remove them from the political process, that has the effect of, of weakening the political muscles of the people. And the long-term result of that is actually to threaten your liberty, because their argument was the best way to protect liberty on the whole is through the political process. So there was, they always had a, a, a significant focus on keeping the, the political process open. Um, and if courts are always deciding things, then people don't go and interact with their fellow citizens in, uh, uh, in political institutions, discuss their differences, come to workable compromises. So those, those muscles kind of atrophy. Um, and so I think that would be another, uh, another danger. And that's something, again, that's been recognized by people on both sides of the ideological aisle. Yeah, that's definitely right. Um, uh, and I would add, especially if you marry the living constitution approach with a pretty dogmatic judicial supremacy, right, which is the idea that the Supreme Court is the final authoritative interpreter of the constitution and everyone, citizens, public officials, and everyone must accept their interpretation of the constitution, not just their decision in a particular case, but their broad interpretation of the constitution. Um, the erosion of the idea that it's the people's responsibility to interpret the constitution and the people's responsibility, for example, to vote on, for public officials based on constitutional ideas and arguments. And I would also say the danger would be that um, public officials themselves start to think, I don't need to think constitutionally anymore because that's what courts do. I just give you one example. I don't mean to be partisan or, or pick on him, but when, when George Bush signed the McCain-Feingold um, uh, campaign finance reform bill, he actually said, I think there are parts of this bill that are, that are unconstitutional, restrictions on freedom of speech, but the, the federal courts will sort that out. 
I think you could say, well, the president takes an oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. He probably should veto legislation that he believes in his heart is unconstitutional. That was certainly the argument of someone like Andrew Jackson when he vetoed the bank bill. And if you begin to displace constitutional thinking to the courts, you run that real danger. And that's not a partisan thing, right? It's not just right. You gave the example of George Bush. It's not just the Republicans who say, well, we'll just turn it over to the Supreme Court to tell us what the Constitution means. It's the Democrats today as well. I'll, I'll balance out the partisanship with another example on the other side. I believe that during the Obamacare debates uh, in Congress, many Democratic congressmen went and congresswomen went on record saying, I think parts of this Obamacare bill I think parts are unconstitutional, but I'm going to vote for it anyways and let the Supreme Court tell us whether or not it's constitutional or not. But I would, again, I would just reiterate, Jason, that's really a problem of judicial supremacy, not necessarily of the living constitution. Yeah, because we, yeah. we, we have a question here that just came in. If you have a living constitution court, would the other branches be bound to carry out their decisions if they don't agree with them? Well, if you believe in judicial supremacy... Yes. Um, so that I think Jeff is pointing to the real part is that what we have combined is, uh, in many people's minds is a kind of living constitutionalism, but uh, with judicial supremacy and living constitutional. I think even originalists would say that living constitutionalism wouldn't be nearly as alarming to them if you didn't have judicial supremacy as well as the as the, the operating understanding of how our system works with the, the Supreme Court speaks, then it's final, where if you had something like departmentalism, uh, where the, which is the idea that each department of government both has the uh, duty and authority uh, to interpret the Constitution, really is a function of separation of powers, then the stakes are reduced <laughs> um, because you, it's an invitation to deliberation among the branches of, uh, of government. And so you don't just have to, to, to fall prostrate before the Supreme Court if it offers an opinion that is flagrantly wrong. Um, this was kind of this was Lincoln's position on the Dred Scott decision. <laughs> um, like we don't, we, if we just submit to the Dred Scott decision, then we're just stuck with slavery. And but we think that it's wrong, so we are allowed to talk back, to push back, and to uh, to try to undermine this in a, in, in other ways. Um, so that I, I think that's yeah, it's the it's the combination of the two that makes it most most alarming to some. Yeah, and I would I would just add that Josh does a really nice job in this volume of selecting documents that let you hear that other voice, which is really, you don't hear much anymore. This idea that the Supreme Court is not automatically, it's not in Article 3 of the Constitution, it's not in the Federalist Papers, it's not even in Marbury versus Madison, I would argue, that the Supreme Court is the final authoritative interpreter of the Constitution and everyone must bow and obey and carry it out. Um, that grew over time. And there's been scholars that have done great work on this, like Keith Whittington at Princeton, to show how this happened historically. It was definitely not the original understanding of the court's power, but um, it, it can be a real problem to think of the Supreme Court as constitutional dictation rather than constitutional conversation, as I think that's more according to the underlying uh, understanding of the constitution of the court's power at the time. And frankly, I think that's an idea that both left and right politically can get behind and embrace. Because if you're on the left and there's a conservative majority on the court, maybe you want more of a conversation and less of dictation and vice versa. So I, I think that it has possibilities to not just reinvigorate um, civil understanding of constitutional thinking, but also kind of be a common ground for people to meet on. 
Yeah, after the Supreme Court offers a decision in any particular ruling, uh, what you'll often hear, at least from the side that, quote unquote, won the case is the debate is over. What you two seem to be saying is, no, the debate is only beginning. When uh, conservatives, conservatives lately, including conservatives on the court, seem to be pretty full throated endorsers of judicial supremacy. Yeah. And you've actually, you've seen uh, scholars on the left, Mark Tushnitz is an example, uh, Larry Kramer, right? Uh, over the last 20 to 25 years, uh, there are several books co- coming from the left attacking judicial supremacy uh, as inconsistent with it, with, uh, with the constitution. Um, and also because they're dissatisfied with conservative decisions that are coming out of the Supreme Court now. Okay, so looking at all all these great questions coming in from our audience, and by the way, keep them coming. um, Common good constitutionalism. We have a couple of questions about that. Common good constitutionalism. What is it? What are its strengths and weaknesses? How does it fit into this originalism versus living constitution debate? I think the last document that we looked at for today deals with this topic. Um, What is that common good constitutionalism? So there's one person most associated with common good constitution, but there is a movement of scholars, really a uh, international movement, I I would say. Um, But the person most associated with this is the uh, author of this, uh, the article that I included uh, in in the volume there, which which is also available for today, uh, Adrian Vermeule at Harvard University. And he was someone who was always known as a kind of conservative scholar. He had clerked for Justice Scalia, for instance. Uh, but on some issues, he certainly wasn't. He didn't adopt what you could call the uh, Federalist Society party line about, the, say, the power of the administrative state. Nevertheless, he ended up writing this, this article against originalism, appeared in the Atlantic Monthly just as COVID was uh, uh, to hit. And it's difficult to describe the con- controversy that it created. I mean, it, it generated immense amounts of uh, uh, attention. And I think that Vermeule's argument is twofold. One is a kind of practical argument that uh, originalism has outlived its usefulness for the right, uh, and therefore it should be discarded. After all, originalism had not, after, after what, 30, 40 years of originalism, you still had decisions like Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey on the books. And so he's kind of appealing to the failures of originalism. To, to try to convince people largely on the right, but also I think some on the left as well, uh, to look for a different alternative, uh, which he calls common good constitutionalism. And then common good constitutionalism itself uh, is, in Vermeule's argument, trying to look back to the, uh, the classical legal tradition, uh, which argues that legal interpretation should always be informed by what the, the common good famous line from Thomas Aquinas on this, which would then not limit justices or judges to the strict meaning of the text. Uh, And this would cut in very different ways, according to Vermeule. So for instance, um, there would be things, of course, on sexual autonomy, uh, where he would say they just have to go Obergefell versus Hodges, uh, same-sex marriage has to go, Roe versus Wade uh, has to go under common good constitutionalism. But then there would be other things that conservatives would dislike that would have to be allowed, like you'd prefer a more aggressive posture um, uh, by the court in favor of 
uh, labor unions, for uh, for instance, um, and even and today uh, on free speech doctrine, an area that conservatives have really rallied behind the original, the, the the more liberal position that was articulated in the in the sixties and sixties uh, and seventies. So that's kind of the core of it. He's now written a book uh, also, uh, which is which is worth reading, and. Um, it's it's getting a lot of attention both from the from the left uh, from the left and the right, and that's that's why I included it in the volume because I do think that it's going to continue to get a lot of attention. I think there are many originalists who are worried uh, about more conservative leaning younger uh, attorneys and potential judges actually being captured by this idea of common good constitutionalism. Yeah, the only thing I would add to that is that it, it, common good constitutionalism does say you need to consider the social impact of the issue and the decision that you're making, uh, as Josh was suggesting. And that includes thinking about rights with their corresponding responsibilities and duties. So that the idea, for example, of the First Amendment being absolute, which, as Josh said, conservatives have really rallied around that lately. Uh, He wants to say, I'm not so sure that's true. And the law could enforce some of those duties and responsibilities that would limit free speech based on its social impact. Another way of describing it is that you could say it's a, it's a natural law reading of, uh, of the Constitution that should be informed. And if you look at the, the sources that uh, he's relying on, that's, that, uh, they're deeply informed by the natural law tradition. But I think he would say not entirely. Uh, he thinks that this actually, the ideas behind common good constitutional in, way, in many ways precede the full development of natu- natural law theory. But there's no... Uh, getting around the fact that that, that many of the m- many of the people uh, who he would draw on to decide what the what should shape uh, common good reasoning about legal texts uh, do come out of the natural law tradition. Has Justice Thomas said anything on common good constitutionalism? He's also somebody else who has right, invoked the the natural law right Declaration of Independence in in some of his rulings. Has has he uh, come out and taken a position on this? I have not heard him. There have been other uh, j- judges, lower court judges, who have a t- who have a t- have come out against Vermeule, uh, uh, you know, Federalist Society uh, judges, um, or ones who you know in law school were part of the Federalist Society. They show up to Federalist Society events. And for those of you who don't know, the Federalist Society was an organization created in the early 1980s among conservative law school students. Uh, to try to to build a kind of conservative counterweight to what they thought was the and argued was the ideological disposition of most law schools and the and the legal establishment and became it became a very uh, influential and successful or, organization. Uh, but I don't think that just I don't think that Justice Thomas uh, Thomas has. Um, and I, what Vermeule, what, you know, part of what Vermeule's argument is is he 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 is is not a liberal in the traditional classical sense of the word liberal. And that's also part of his, his arguments is that we need to move beyond this. So even though say Justice Thomas has invoked the Declaration of Independence for, for Vermeule, I think the Declaration of Independence would just be, would be too Lockean um, for, for him. I, I was just going to say that. I thought so too. And, and in fact, Justice Thomas, a couple terms back, came out with a, a, an opinion where much of the opinion was a discussion of the difference between positive rights and negative rights. It was on due process and the meaning of liberty and a due process. And it really reads like a political treatise on Locke. So I, I, Justice Thomas is, um, I think, quite classically liberal in his interpretation of the political philosophy of the Constitution. And that's definitely at odds with Vermeule. 
All right, we've got about six minutes left here. So we're, we're getting down to the wire. I want to try to get to as many questions as we can from our audience. Um, one person I, I believe is a teacher asked, uh, do either of you have a sense of how much deep study of the Constitution exists in current law school? Are law students really learning it as a basic law of the nation, its history, its creation, et cetera? Well, it, every law school student their first year will have to take one course on constitutional law. Uh, but after that, there's no requirement that they take classes that focus on constitutional law. And this is actually, so I, I teach constitutional law, but in an under, undergraduate setting. And that's one of the things that I have to explain to my students, which is that most law that you will study in law school is not going to be constitutional law. And most law that people practice is not going to be constitutional law. It's actually very difficult to make a living as a constitutional lawyer. That <laughs> it's they just you know you kind of do it as a side hustle um, if you're uh, or a side interest. Uh, but most people that's not they aren't going to be able to make a living. There are very few attorneys in the country that can just make a living practicing constitutional law. Now the question is that you know how much do they actually focus on this? If you look at the case books. Um, I think that most of the casebooks would focus on the, the cases decided by the Supreme Court uh, as a study of constitutional law. And so then, you're, then, then the question is, well, um, is that actually a full understanding of the Constitution or not? Uh, because some people would argue that if you just focus on the Supreme Court's decisions, that essentially puts the Supreme Court decisions above the Constitution. So there could be some of that. I do have the sense, though, that at least over the last 30 to 40 years, since originalism has gained traction, that there is much more of a significant focus in con law classes, in law schools, not only on what the Supreme Court has said, uh, but on you know, the, the history, the text and tradition sur surrounding the, uh, the Constitution. It's certainly true um, that it, at least maybe 10, 20 years ago, constitutional law textbooks used in law school didn't even include the constitution in them. Yeah, right. 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 So, have a copy uh, of it. Right. <laughs> Ed Meese points this out. He has an article around Reagan's attorney general where he just basically makes the very simple fact that, of course, it caused a big uproar saying constitutional law is not the constitution. It's just interpretations of the constitution. So uh, I think there has been a movement toward that. But it's surprising. It's very limited, uh, the slices. And of course, sometimes they'll go on for later study in this. But the Anglo-American tradition that we've inherited is so case law based. That's part of it. It's not just, well, we don't care about the meaning of the Constitution. It's we, we're so used to case law decisions and, and studying those in law school. It's just a different approach. But I absolutely think there's room for reform in law school to actually study the documents and the text and the tradition much more deeply. I bet not many law students ever read the Constitutional Convention debates. Yeah. Now, there are some professors who will, uh, someone say like Randy Barnett at Georgetown. I guarantee you if you take a con law class with him, you, you will do that. But uh, there aren't a lot of Randy Barnett's out there uh, in the law school world. <laughs> so that would, be the, uh, that, that would be the issue. Okay. So what's the best way to interpret the Constitution? originalism, living constitution, common good constitutionalism, what's the best approach here? And why should ordinary Americans continue to care about this question? Well, I mean, I, I think the second question is, again, a good way of getting at the first, which is that uh, depending on how judges interpret the constitution, it directly affects you and you, uh, and. Uh, 
your rights, uh, your ability to participate in the political process, all sorts of questions, other questions then flow are decided by how, how the justices approach in, in interpreting, the, uh, interpreting the Constitution. So do you actually want us to just come out and declare, like, like how, if we were on the Supreme Court, how we would interpret the Constitution? What your advice would be for interpreting the Constitution to a, a, a constitutionally minded American citizen? How should I think about the Constitution? What is the best way to think about the Constitution? Can I jump in? I'll, I'm yeah. going to give Josh a minute to think. Because uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to avoid your question, Jason. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say uh, an approach to the Constitution that takes constitutional thinking away from the people and their public officials is a bad approach. Sometimes that's a living Constitution. Sometimes maybe it's originalism. Yeah. But absolutely, those are, that's wrong. I would also argue for a legislature centered interpretation, meaning that sometimes there needs to be judicial restraint so that the legislature and the political process can play itself out. And maybe sometimes there needs to be some judicial assertiveness to defend the, the, the interests and rights of the legislature to make law on, on questions that are unclear. So maybe it's a judicial activism versus judicial restraint, if you want to put it that way. But um, I, I think we've gotten very far. If you look at textbooks that the teachers out there are using, and I bet they see this, it's just an article of faith when you read a textbook that it's the Supreme Court's job to tell us what the Constitution means. And I think that is a, and, and it's their job only their job. That is a pernicious doctrine that was never part, has never been part of the Constitution, should not be part of the Constitution. And, and we need to, uh, expel that idea and re-educate ourselves on the Constitution. Yeah, I fully agree with that. The outsourcing uh, constitutional interpretation to one institution is is disastrous. I think you can also see the effects of that in the uh, lack of knowledge that ordinary Americans have about the Constitution. It really is. I mean, we're supposed to be a constitutional republic, a constitutional democracy. That I think that means that in order to be successful, the, the citizens need to know what's in the document. But I, the judicial supremacy has contributed uh, to, to, to the belief that people don't need to know what's in it. It's not our job. Uh, and that is dangerous. It's, uh, it's destructive. And if we moved away from that, we would have a, a richer public debate about the meaning, uh, mm -hmm. about the meaning of the Constitution. I mean, I do think that you have to take the words uh, as they are written seriously. Uh, they can't just be a blank slate. Um, but in some, you know, again, sometimes this can cut in, in different directions and in, in, in different ways. Um, but in some ways, I do think that is the most important issue that, that we're confronting. And can I just say that's why I like this volume so much uh, of Professor Dunn's, because he includes a lot of those documents that invite that other perspective of, hey, it needs to be a constitutional conversation. We all need to be involved in that thinking. And those are not documents that you often find uh, excerpted or even referred to in textbooks. That was my final question. Yeah, we, we, we tend to end uh, all these webinars with this question, but 30 seconds, what's one or two books that you might recommend to uh, audience members to, to read if they're interested in learning more about this subject? So actually, I mentioned before Akhil Amar uh, at Yale. He has uh, this book, America's uh, the Constitution: A Biography. I think is the uh, the title of it. 
which I think is a very good treatment of, of, of the Constitution. And again, he comes from the left, but he's, a, he's an originalist of a, of a sort. And so I think it gives you a good exposure to different uh, treatments of the Constitution. And he's just a very thoughtful and careful scholar. So that would, that would be that, that, would, that would be one book. Um, and that would, if you look at that, then he's going to point you to other original sources that would be good places to, to dive in as well. And I would just strongly recommend this volume again. It's terrific. Oh, thank you. All right. Well, thank you to our panelists as well as to our participants for some great questions. Um, as a reminder uh, to everybody out there watching, within the next week or so, you will receive an email that will include links to today's readings, suggested further readings on today's topic, uh, and a link to the archived webinar. We hope you will share this information with your colleagues as well as on social media. Uh, if you have enjoyed today's webinar, please consider taking an online graduate course in our MAG program, our Masters of Arts in American History and Government program. Uh, both of these gentlemen, they, uh, they teach in that program uh, and uh, they really are fantastic professors. If you've enjoyed this webinar, I guarantee you'd even enjoy even more being in the classroom with these guys. Um, you can find more information about the MAG program and the other online course offerings from Teaching American History, uh, as well as many other resources for teachers at our website, tah.org, teachingamericanhistory.org. This has been the fourth episode of American Controversies. The program will return on January 7th, 2023 in the new year when the discussion will focus on the relationship between the Roaring Twenties and the Great Depression. Uh, thanks again to, to both of our panelists, uh, Professor Sickinga, Professor Dunn, thank you so much for being here today. It's, it's really been a pleasure. Thank you. It was great being with you. Yeah, great to be with you. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. And thank you to all of you out there watching us uh, this morning. Thank you for being with us. And we look forward to seeing you next month. Thanks again for listening to Teaching American History's webinar on approaches to constitutional interpretation. For more information on our webinars, in-person educator professional development programs, free document library, and graduate program, please visit us at th.org.